0: To date, Suki Kim is the only writer ever to live and work undercover in North Korea, where she risked her life to document the unseen private lives of ordinary North Korean citizens. Kim has been traveling to North Korea as a journalist since 2002, documenting milestones such as Kim Jong-il's 60th birthday celebration and the New York Philharmonic's historic 2008 cultural visit to Pyongyang. But in 2011, Kim was offered the life-changing opportunity to disguise herself as an English teacher at Pyongyang University of Science and Technology, where the children of North Korea's elite ruling class are trained to become the next generation of leaders. After six months, Kim was forced to evacuate the country upon the death of Kim Jong-il, but not before meticulously recording her firsthand experience of day-to-day life and behind-closed-doors conversations.
1: I mean, the U.N. calls it the level of violations against humanity unsurpassed in the contemporary world. I mean, that's the recent U.N. report. And we've never seen anything like it.
0: In 2014, Kim compiled these stories into a landmark work of investigative journalism, Without You, There Is No Us, undercover among the sons of North Korea's elite. Since its publication, the book has become a New York Times bestseller and has started an essential conversation about the psychological and human costs of the North Korean regime. Beyond her impressive journalistic accomplishments, Suki Kim is also a published novelist and has been a featured contributor on Fareed Zakaria's GPS, Amanpour, and The Daily Show. Her 2015 TED Talk, which received a standing ovation from an audience that happened to include Bill Gates and Al Gore, has since drawn millions of viewers online. At an Ivy Ideas Night in New York, Suki discussed her fascinating journey with Mike's Natasha Noman, and invited Ivy members to consider the hidden lives that she all too briefly glimpsed. Please enjoy our conversation with Suki Kim. listening to the ivy podcast by ivy the social university we are the grad school for life and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people ideas and experiences in the world for more information about the ivy community and to find out about events happening near you visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com This episode of the Ivy podcast is brought to you by Eight, maker of the Eight Smart Bed. Sleeping is smart. So is a bed that tells you exactly how well you slept last night. The Eight Smart Bed is a four-layer high-density foam mattress paired with a smart cover that goes on the mattress just like a fitted sheet. This nearly invisible technology layer has multiple sensors that measure the quality of your sleep and deliver a daily sleep report each morning through the 8 app. The 8 cover also has a bed warming feature that warms each side of the bed individually to accommodate different sleeping temperatures. And 8 connects to almost any Wi Fi enabled device in your house. Coffee makers, blinds, smart lights. Did we mention bed warming? Ivy podcast listeners get $100 off any mattress purchase by entering the promo code Ivy at checkout. Visit www.8sleep.com forward slash Ivy to start sleeping smarter today.
2: I think um, the first thing on uh, everyone's mind is uh, whether or not the leaders of the party were good at karaoke.
1: Um, you know, to be honest, I know it sounds... I was just actually scared, I think, every time I was there. And I was terrified. They probably were very good. Koreans generally are excellent at karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember being petrified.
2: I mean, especially with those guys. Can you before we launch into the more compelling personal dimension, is there a way you can just distill uh, how Korea got broken up in the first place in a sentence or two? Because I think that is a piece of history that's very often lost on our generation.
1: Yeah, it's really, I think that's an excellent question. I actually forgot to say that, I was gonna talk about that. I mean, you know, so now North Korea has become this uh, uh, curiosity, really. You know, it kind of just drives me crazy how it's become this ridiculous laughter point in the Western media. Before there was ever North Korea, you know, Korea is a 5,000-year-old kingdom. So there was always, always one Korea. And then in um, 1945, uh, you know, Korea was uh, a kingdom, and it was colonized by Japan since 1910. And in 1945, uh, allies come to liberate it from Japan. So instead of just liberating it, in 1943, they did a thing called Cairo Conference. And in that Cairo Conference, they agreed to split up Korea and liberate it in due course. And it's this phrase, really, that ended up giving the right to cut up the country, which actually the 38th parallel that cuts Korea was made by the United States. And that division ended up separating millions of families. So by the time North attacked South, it was not a civil war. It was really Russia who was in charge of, they handpicked the original great leader, Kim Il-sung, was really handpicked by Russia. South Korean president was handpicked by the United States. So that war, Korean War, that people remember, now called Forgotten War, which is obviously not forgotten by anybody, is actually was an American war. And what is unbelievably unjust is that it killed and separated millions of Korean families. And it's a country, I mean, we talk about a family value. The whole country was based on Confucianism, which is about families. And I think that kind of separation and longing, you cut up families, except from here to Brooklyn. Suddenly you cut up a, put up a wall and say you can't go over there. So my grandmother, who actually her son ended up in North and were from South during the war, um, thought he was going to come home like next week. So she waited and waited and waited and waited. And she's just one of millions such mothers, and he never came home. I mean, I do think that generation died of heartbreak. And that's what North Korea is. Now we like associate it with Kim Jong-un and stuff. But actually, it's about this tragedy of Just family being separated and not seeing each other for 70 years. Well,
2: that's that's what I wanted to ask you. You do such a good job in the book of um, capturing um, the way this sort of sense of loss is inherited down um, from generation to generation, at least um, amongst your South Korean family. And I'm wondering uh, how that trauma translated, or rather expressed itself, um, in North Korea. If you saw a difference, or um, if the war was regarded in very similar ways?
1: You know, I think that that's probably what was really, I mean, there's so many levels of this complicated story that is heartbreaking. But over there, you know, I was lucky that I ended up in South Korea. But the ones who ended up in North Korea, you know, They had a brutal leadership. So they basically wiped everything out. They wiped out history. They wiped out education. You can't really teach anything if you're only going to teach the great leader. How do you teach psychology, history, or, I mean, literature? (laughs) You can't erase the world and educate anybody. So what that meant was they also wiped out history. So they also, I mean, and you know, Mao did this. You know, like you, they moved all the, families around the country. So no one can find their roots. And in a way, it just got massacred. And I think that's how that brutal regime was able to, also, I mean, they killed off everyone. Intelligentsia were the first ones to be killed. So in North Korea, what is left now? You know, people always ask me, what is it really like? It's like an incredibly abusive home that went on for 70 years. It's the only way this exists. Which is why I think things like, what really personally makes me so furious is when people talk about things like the interview and things like that. It's like, really, are we really gonna make fun of the world's greatest tragedy? I mean, the UN calls it the level of violations against humanity unsurpassed in the contemporary world. I mean, that's the recent UN report. and. It's, we've never seen anything like it. When the,
2: oh, sorry, my, okay. No, I'm also one gesticulation away from a wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> Remembering why I don't wear this dress very much. And I'm breaking the chair. This is going well. <laughs> so, <clears throat> let's just hope I don't fall down. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so, to your point about films like The Interview and the way the West deals with North Korea, um, it is so often parodied and turned into this kind of two-dimensional cartoonish place with the rotund kind of uh, eccentric dictator. Um, and I mean, even legitimate sort of legacy publications fall into this trap. My sense is, based off what you said, as far as you think that is a dangerous thing, um, why and how can the world report on um, on somewhere like North Korea in a nuanced fashion?
1: You know, I do, I mean, this is probably also why I was invited to uh, talk to you guys, right? The Ivy community who I understand are the entrepreneur, um, in a way, leaders. <laughs> and I do, I mean, I think that the first step is we're also lacking education, right? Why, because North Korea is one place where foreign policy has utterly failed and um, journalism has also failed. If we have no inside report that is legitimately undercover journalism because it's land of propaganda, you can't interview anybody and get anything out. So then we don't know anything and I think it's our job to find out more. Because once we find out more, then maybe we'll figure out. Try to at least do something. Because, I mean, it's at Nazi Germany concentration camp level, and that's been going on for seventy years. I mean, it's not five years; it's seventy years. It's going on now as we speak. The kids that you show, you saw them marching, and I wish I could show. I don't ever show their real face ones where they're laughing and making jokes and just adorable. I mean, these are these kids are living there. <laughs> And those kids were like like us. I think that was what was so, uh, for me, just actually, physically, I found it uncomfortable and unacceptable. So then I think we just have to find out more, which I guess I'm doing in my share. I'm a writer. That is what I can do. Um, in whatever capacity, I think we do.
2: You did that at great personal risk. Um, you could have been imprisoned just for taking the kind of notes that you did while you were there, right?
1: Well, I, uh, well how I was able to do it was because I had a laptop. So I, um, because I'm a teacher, my cover. So I wrote up my notes within the document, so it looked like my notes were starting like page 100, and then I would put that. Um, so it looked like a school lesson if you look, look, open the document. But then I would put that on USB sticks, and I would erase everything off the computer every single time. So there's nothing on the laptop itself. And then I kept the USB stick on my body at all time. I kept a backup on an SD card, and I hid it in the room. But in the dark, I would always be because there could be a camera in the room.
2: So you would turn off the lights, and then you would hide this USB stick? Well, because I obviously need a
1: backup, and that I, I chose SD card at the time because that wasn't as obvious as USB sticks, and then I kept it all on me at all times, and that was the only, I mean, you know, there was no, I mean, I knew that they looked through stuff, and this information, there's a reason why there is no inside undercover reporting from within North Korea. There isn't any, it's because it's not allowed. And the, the punishment for that would have been, I don't know. I mean, and their minders, their job was to watch over me 24-7, living downstairs. So what was my option but to do that? And in hindsight, I mean, I do think it's a miracle I came out alive. But I guess it would have been a gulag sentence if I were lucky, maybe.
2: I think that... Um, for a lot of children of immigrants, I, my father is Pakistani, um, I, I've certainly felt this, that there's this notion that returning to the ancestral homeland is a rite of passage, um, but there are a number of children of immigrants for whom that is not a luxury, and it, it, Koreans are a perfect example. Um, how do you balance being a cultural emissary for a place that you are not welcome
1: well, I mean, I don't think that North Korea is really um I mean there was a part of this sorrow I was returning to understand or I wanted, you know, I wanted the world to at least you know my biggest nightmare? You know, we all have our nightmares, is for a story to just die without it ever being that no one ever found out. I always think about like when you watch like those concentration camp movies, like none of us got to know what they went through right like all these human beings died and the world didn't do anything and i feel like basically when we look at 70 years my grandmother's generation and those people like all those nights they cried right (laughs) missing their mothers or missing their like all that story just disappeared and i felt like when you're talking about going back to like I've, some of it I just felt like it was my duty as a writer to deliver that to the world so this story doesn't get lost into the lost land like I do think humanity is that, isn't it? like we have to remember sorrow and we have to honor things like that
2: if um, if you could have done anything differently, would you have or would you have gone through your? investigative journey in exactly the same way?
1: Could you repeat? Yeah, I kind of
2: got lost in my thought. Yeah, um, It was the dance music over there. (laughs) No pressure, turn it off. Um, No, if you could have done it differently, would you have done anything with the benefit of hindsight, or would you have gone about um, doing the journey in the same way? Because in the book you say you felt as though you were I mean, it, it could have looked as though you were naive, even though you weren't but you weren't necessarily um, as seasoned as you are now. So with the benefit of hindsight, hindsight, would you have approached the story, or the adventure, not adventure, the investigative journey in any different way?
1: I don't think so, because I think the fear, people always ask me, like, why would you do that? How did you do that? And, and fear is always there. And I think part of that thing of not wanting to know when you're doing something as scary as this for 10 years, was because once I start tapping into that fear that I, I, had, I couldn't do it. I mean, it was scary, you know? Like, if I really step back and think every time I'm hiding my USB stick and I think, what are the consequences? Would I get stuck? Sometimes those thoughts cross my mind, of course. What if I get stuck here in Pyongyang for next, whatever, 20 years? And my mother would have to basically you know, miss me or worry about me and cry over me until she died. I mean, mean, that horror, I think human beings, like so, so, I mean, I don't know, you all have a different field where you excel at. So I think that when you're really driven to follow that through, you kind of just focus on like one day at a time, what's ahead of you. So I don't think I would have done
2: anything differently. You wrote an essay for the New Republic about being a female, or a woman of color, um, who's an investigative journalist, and I want to read you a little bit, a little quote from your essay. um, Towards the end, you say, As a woman of color entrenched in a profession still dominated by white men, I have been forced to use my writing not to explore topics of my own choosing or to investigate the world's complexities, but as a means to legitimize myself. I want to know what it's like being a woman of color, um, what your experience has been like, and, and also a little bit about how this has been a double-edged sword, because it has worked against you, but it's also worked for you.
1: Well, um, one thing I would do it differently is that this book was the only investigative, undercover investigative uh, book literary uh, from within North Korea, was actually marketed as a memoir. And um, as though it were Eat, Pray, Love sort of memoir. And Which
2: it most certainly is not.
1: It certainly is not Eat, Pray, Love. And I fought and fought and fought, and I didn't um, win that battle with my publisher. And it had all this repercussion that I actually didn't even realize at the time. Meaning, once you call it a memoir, then you didn't go undercover. Like, people thought I went home to Korea. Or uh, once it was a memoir, then it was not journalism. So then I didn't go undercover. I was just sort of on a trip to find myself. And I realized if I were male, this would have never happened. Nobody would look at an investigative undercover journey into North Korea and, and, and package it as he's trying to just find himself. In Pyongyang, North Korea.
2: <laughs> That's where I go to do my soul searching. And
1: I think for women writers, I realized this was all sorts of ugliness of why this happened. Like this would have not happened if I were, if my name was not Suki Kim. For a woman, I think for her expertise to be taken away happens all the time. So that although I researched it for 10 years, although I lived there for five times, I went there for time, five times, and I actually lived there, somehow still this became sort of this, this little memory that I wrote the book from. You know, the undermining was outrageous. Undermining It was really systematically done, why it was so undermined, and having it be called a memoir has actually uh, brought the book down in many sense. Um, And what it really was doing was silencing this information, because then you call it, it's not an expert information, because it's not journalism, it's a memoir. So I think what I learned was that you really do have to protect your work, or also who you are. And I also learned, which I knew, but racism and sexism is a really, really a power, like it's just, it was everywhere. Why they, want, well, why they didn't want to give me the fact that I went undercover, but the, everywhere I turned, they would say, but you, you lied to get into North Korea. But that's what undercover journalism is. <laughs> so if a man went into North Korea undercover pretending to be a fundamental evangelical Christian ESL teacher, then that's called undercover serious journalism. If a woman did it, she's a liar. And I was called
2: publicly a liar by the New York Times. Well, I have a little experience being a woman of color-ish um, a journalist. Funnily enough, I get a lot more threats and trolls um, whenever I write a piece that isn't even that controversial because compared to my a colleague at work who's a big, beefy, muscular white man. I don't know why they don't send him as many threats. Um, Has this galvanized you or kind of made you more passionate about what you do, the backlash that you've received because of who you are? Well, I think it really
1: made me angry. You know, I think I spent a long time on a book tour, and attack after attack or reviews after reviews kept talking about she's she's a liar and she's paranoid. It's like, I'm in North Korea, so how can I... I, I mean, it's just called actually professionalism <laughs> to worry who's going to report on me or send me away to a gulag, um, and you know the lying business and why that you know the obvious truth you do have to lie if you're going to write. You know, you do have to go undercover. Like, why it was denied? I think writing about it was really empowering. Actually, I published an essay in the New Republic in this month. Um, And how much reaction it got, because the essay. positive positive feedback? The essay went totally viral, and um, it was so, so shared everywhere. And, you know, people were outraged, which actually made me feel, um, it was something I learned. You know, I think that's an amazing thing about life, that you learn something all the time. And what I learned was that, like, you know, what you believe in, you speak up. Or you, you know, you do, you do it in your own way of expressing it, and in your most biggest truth. And I think that's. Um, I felt so horrible on the book tour, constantly being called a memoirist, which I didn't really see myself as a eat, pray, Love memoirist. So I, I think finally speaking that. Um, out to the public and telling them this is how I feel I think that was really um, important because in a way I was sort of honoring you know what I did
2: and that sort of process
1: was cathartic for you in some sense I think so yeah
0: thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy podcast by Ivy the social university